Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Random People Show. I'm your host, Sina Canada, and this show is brought to you by the Human Picture Initiative. You can learn more about the Human Picture Initiative at hpimedia.com. If you have been following us, we are still out in Los Angeles, and you will know that is because I was out there working on pre-production for a documentary project prior to the shutdown that happened in March. So I've decided to share some of the interviews from that project here because that project is indefinitely shelved. So in this episode, my friend Addie Gately and I sit down with Billy Sullivan. Addie is there as a co-host. And I found Billy when a friend of mine shared a Facebook video of a group of guys in a band called Mission to Midnight. Those guys were recording an album. And what caught my attention was that all the guys were living at the Midnight Mission on Skid Row. Skid Row is a neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles that has a high concentration of social services for the homeless. And these guys had either experienced homelessness or were currently experiencing homelessness. Turns out Billy was producing and recording those guys at his studio. I was, of course, super interested to learn more about the project. And I asked my friend if he could connect me with Billy to see if he might like to be interviewed about it. So here we are. If you'd like to learn more about the band and see the video that inspired me to contact Billy, you can look for them at Mission to Midnight on Facebook. Billy is also working on a documentary about this project and recording the guys, and both he and the band will post on social media about that project when it's the right time, so you may want to follow them and keep up with that. I should also make a side note that there is language in this episode that may not be suitable for all listeners. If you're with someone you might feel could be in that category, I would throw on some headphones or save this one for later. Billy, thank you so much for having us to your studio. Sure. First, let me just say that we're also here with my friend Addie Gately. She's going to participate in this um, interview as she's a super curious, inquisitive person, and I know she'll have some great questions. Yeah, but thanks for having me. When we first walked in, she asked how you gave Mar- Marvis? Marvis. Marvis his name, so I'd right. love to hear that story right. on the so, record. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I rescued him from a pound. I found him and... He was scruffed up. We took him to a pound. Anyway, dropped him, cleaned him up, dropped him off. They said, you got 10 days or we're going to have to put him down. So on the 10th, I kept calling and he didn't get home, didn't get home. And on the 10th day, I said, well, wait right there. I'm on my way. So I went back up, drove up from North Hollywood, back up to Lancaster, got him, brought him home. They didn't have a name for him. The lady next door that we had taken him from that was neglecting him, she didn't give us a name or have a name for him. And I was brushing my teeth and I looked down and I said, how about Marvis? And Marvis is an Italian toothpaste. Uh, it's very expensive. You buy it at Fred Siegel. I'm certainly not a snob, but I wanted it to be something unique, and you know, and everybody calls him Mavis and Maple, and they, they'll say anything because it's kind of a strange name, but right. it's Marvis. Okay. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to get that on the yeah, record. Sure. But for some reason, your mic is uh, struggling. I can start yelling. I mean. <laughs> okay. Go ahead and give me one more test. One, two. Check. One, two. Check. One, two. Got it. All right. So, um, so first question. Yeah. So do you want to just dive right in? I'd, I'd like to hear about the project. What brought you to that project? So, Specifically, you said something yesterday that I'm really inter- interested in. I just sort of dinged. No, is that, that's not mine. 
Okay. So you've never been in a more professional interview setting. I'm positive. <laughs> Actually, even the more professional, the crazier I get. So it doesn't really matter. Okay. So what happened to me was I I have a friend who is the marketing and promotional director for the Midnight Mission. For those of you that don't know, the Midnight Mission is it's down in Skid Row, downtown Los Angeles, and it's a nonprofit organization that feed and house the homeless. And they clothe, and they Medicare, and they medical, and they do anything they can for anybody that wants to come in and be a part of the mission that is destitute. Now, if you go in drunk, you can get sober there, but you can't participate using drugs or alcohol and try to have them give you their resources. They won't do that. So if you come in drunk, that's fine, but you need to get sober there and stay. The problem with drugs and alcohol or any other critical addiction or dependency is the people that come primarily are not of means to stabilize their lives. So they'll come in, they'll get cleaned up, they'll get sober, they'll get some medication, but as soon as they start feeling better, they're back out the door. So it really is a tough success rate for the number of people that come through. Now, I wasn't really aware. I was always aware of the Midnight Mission. I think most people in Los Angeles, when you say the Midnight Mission, people know what that is. Now, I can't speak for the Midnight Mission. I don't belong. I'm not a member. I'm a friend of someone that is employed by them. And every week on Thursdays, she would post on lunch, on a little lunch break, she would post this little blues band that would go up there and they would play for 30 minutes, 45 minutes for all the people that were coming into the mission at lunchtime. Now, let's be clear. The mission serves 3,000 meals a day. 1,000 breakfast, 1,000 lunch, 1,000 dinner. So the lunchtime, everybody would come in, get food, they'd all sit down, and she'd put these little guys that were homeless, that are homeless, but they're all musicians. One's a great singer, harmonica, bass, drummer, you know, guitar player, and she'd put, and they'd jam through their little blues songs. And every week she would post these. Now, I'm going to answer your question. I have no idea what was going on unconsciously that I decided to get in the car and go down there on a Thursday afternoon and watch this little band. I didn't know that going down there, I was going to decide to make a record with them. I just went down. I, I can't answer that. But something was going on in the subconscious. Follow? So I went down and I hung out with her and she introduced me to the guys. And, they, and I just sat and watched and they all played. And I thought, and then there's something about them that just endeared my heart. I don't know what it was, maybe because they were so desperate and on the street, and I'm always one that wants to give and take care of. But that really wasn't it as much as they really kind of moved me about who they were as people. And these guys are, I mean, they're homeless. They're $2 short of being broke, and they're at the bottom of the bottom. Yet they got up there with the spirit to entertain and to try to give the homeless that were coming in for a meal that day some hope, if you will. So I said, all right, what could I do? And that's really the question. But I didn't go down there thinking, well, what could I do? I went down there just to see 
meet her and see the band. And I didn't really know, at least consciously, that I was going to try to do something. So, go ahead. Real quick, the band itself wasn't made up necessarily of employees. It was literally the guys was, living at the yeah, shelter. They were not employees. They were a couple of them were living at the at the Midnight Mission, and a couple of them were down the street in tents. And these guys were homeless. So, all right, so I said, all right, what am I going to do? So I, I decided, so I told my relationship down there that I would try to, let's go in the studio and do a little recording with them. Now, like my, you know, obsessive, compulsive, neurotic self, I couldn't just bring them in here on a Saturday afternoon, roll tape, run down five songs and say, see you later, hope you enjoyed that. I had to like professionally make, that was the intention at first. They came in and it's like, and they have never been in the studio before, never heard themselves play, never heard themselves recorded or performed, never, ever, ever anything. They were coming out of nowhere. I know they were terrified coming into the studio. They were terrified coming into this situation with me. But I thought, you know, this is something I do. This is something I can give them. I'm not going to pay their bills. I'm not going to give them money. I'm not going to buy them drugs. I'm not going to, you know, maybe, maybe buy them lunch, you know. But make a record and teach them a little bit about music and the art of recording. That I could do because this is what I do. So they came in and they thought they were just going to set up, play four or five songs and go home and, you know, well, it didn't work out that way. It was actually four or five months and it was every Saturday, and it turned into this thing where I decided to really, but I realized something, and this is the point, and this is why I wanted to do this interview with you. This really capsulized the whole thing. In my humble opinion, you can't, you can't save the homeless. What I was figuring out pretty quickly, Sina, is that the light went on in their eyes when they heard themselves back on tape. So I immediately figured out I had something they really wanted. that they didn't even know it till they got into the studio. And I remember the singer one time said to me, wow, that, he says, that, that's me. You know, he was so moved by the fact that there was like, there was a mirror, like he could hear his own voice. He never heard his own voice. So this was, so then I became aware that this is really how you affect change for them. It's not because you're gonna, they, they wouldn't have appreciated a hot dog from 7-Eleven. They don't give a shit about a hot dog from 7-Eleven. That's a way to just get to the next, through the next hour for them. That's not the deeper work. The deeper work is to give them something that they really are invested in. So, for me, I realized for them, it was music. Because all these guys were extremely talented. Like, unbelievably talented. Ah, one guy actually sucked. But the rest were really good. And, and the guy that sucked knows, he knows, because I've told him he sucked. And, and he's appreciated that, because then he had to figure out, he had to go home and practice if he was going to stick around. But 
but the other guys were really, they blew me away. This guy's voice was like, he was like Smokey Robinson. It was like an angel. He's this 63-year-old black man. He's diabetic. He's got neuropathy in his legs. He can't walk. He has to be, he, when we go out and play live, when we perform live, he has to sit down in a chair. <clears throat> I mean, he's really, I mean, his fingernails are all brown and crusted and overgrown. He smokes cigarettes, which, by the way, is the worst thing you can do for diabetes. He's, he's you know, beyond diabetic. I, mean, I don't know how much longer he's got to live. But, man, when he opens his mouth, he sounds like an angel. It's just, and I, I even said to him, how do you have a voice like that and smoke? And he's been, you know, he's been smoking since he's 13, of course. So you see what I'm saying? They got to see, I held a mirror up. And when I held that mirror up, that blew them away. Now, now they're invested in what's going on. Now they're like, okay, this is, I need to stay clean. I need to show up. I said to these guys, if you're not on time, don't even knock on my door. Nobody's ever told them about being on time. They have no bad, they're on time. They don't even have a clock, a watch. They don't, they don't have cell phones. They're on time. You might as well speak German. They don't even know what that means. They have no, I mean, this is what we're, this is what I think I really want most people to understand. They are so far in a black hole coming out of that. You're not going to Section 8 house them and give them a meal and think you're going to really change them because that's not the problem. The problem is self-esteem, self-worth, value, and the bigger problem is a reason to live. The, you know, hot dog at 7-Eleven isn't going to do it, baby. And the, I think the mayor of this city, and I'll, I'll go right on record saying it, and I don't give a shit. I hope he hears this. He doesn't have a clue as to what it really is. People could talk to him all day long, but he's never been homeless. He's never been $2 short of being broke. He's not in their circumstances. Now, I have been. This is how I was able to, to recognize where, where these guys are at. I know what it is to come from hell. So I think it takes someone from hell to, to pull someone out of hell. Does that make sense? Yes. Are you open to sharing your... Where sure. I mean, I'll give you my, you know, if you, if you want my story. I mean, my story is like so many others. But the bigger, the bigger point for me is that, okay, so I was able to affect the lives of these five guys because I had something they really had an interest in. And then that blossomed into learning, starting to understand, wow, you know what, like, I got to go get a job. I have to do I have to trade my time for money. And I better stay sober. And I better do whatever I need to do to affect a better quality of life because clearly I was giving them a way they could without them really even understanding that. They didn't really understand what they were getting into with me. Now I'll give you an example. The harmonica player feisty little chap that he is. He's got about a year and a half sober or something. You know, he's all full of piss and vinegar, you know, but ultimately at the end of the day, he's full of shit and he knows it. But what I had to do was keep confronting him because what he was like, he was like a two-year-old. Not I want to say was like, he is like, because he's still doing it to this day. He's like a little two-year-old. He comes through the door and he tests me. 
He says negative or derogatory remarks. He tries to maybe put a little slant on things. He tries to make things my fault. He tries to shove responsibility off on other people. There are all these little subtle ways this little bastard does this shit. Now, here's the thing. If I let him turn around and walk out the door and give him any idea that he got away with any of that, then he doesn't respect me. It's in the confrontation, it's in the pushback that he's like, whoa, this guy actually cares. They get it that someone gives a shit when they get called out on their thing. If you let them have their way because you don't have the strength to fight it, then they're never going to respect you and they think the whole world is full of shit. It's the person that pushes back that tells them the truth that they respect. Now, whether they're going to stay sober and get a job and get off the street, I don't have any control over that, nor does the fucking mayor. I don't care how much money he thinks he's going to throw at it. He doesn't. The, from what I understand, the president flew here yesterday to talk to the mayor about how horrible the homeless situation is in Los Angeles. Now, that guy's been a silver spoon fed pussy all his life. How does he know? How are you going to come here with you and all your millions that you grew up with, with, your, with the, your, your private schools and your father and all his millions, going to come here and identify with these? With these? You go down and you, you hit up the blacks and Hispanics or the whites, doesn't matter. You go down to Skid Row and try to hit them up with what they don't, they, they'll piss on you. They don't care that you're the president. You're just an angry white man as far as they're concerned. And as far as they're concerned, you're the reason they're there. Now, we know that that's not true in, in, the def, in the president's defense. But what was he going to do? Come here and talk to the mayor about what kind of federal funding they got? Okay, great. That's all great. But I'm proposing to both of you today that is not what's going to change the homeless themselves. It's not going to do it. Believe me, they've had opportunities at houses. They've been fed meals. And they're still homeless. That's not... It, that's not what does it. What does it is to truly find a reason to hook into their lives and to have something real to offer, which is self-esteem, which are boundaries, which is healthy talk, and which is the gift of offering something that they want, but doing it on a condition. Does that make sense? Because if there's a condition, now they're invested. If they could just do whatever they want, well, what, what does that teach anybody ever? Nothing, right? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. This isn't my world of profession. The world of profession that I know is the recording studio, and that happened to be something these five guys wanted. So I, so I used that as a way to then set boundaries, make sure they were here on time. When they weren't on time, call them out on it, not let them get away with it, and say, the next time you come, the, the gate's locked, and you're going to drive another half hour back downtown L.A. Because I'm not opening the gate if you're late. You, you know what that did to that guy, that harmonica? You know how bad that pissed him off? He blew a shit fit that I did that. Absolute shit fit. But you know what? He wasn't ever late again. It was how he learned. There has to be ramifications for your behavior. So this was what I was kind of teaching them. And you know what? I've made five friends for life. You know, that's the point. 
Okay, so the drummer. I'm going to tell you a story. Wait, before you, before you yeah, jump into sure. the individuals, can I just ask, you mentioned yesterday something that I want to touch on. Sure. Because you've brought us through this on a journey to mm -hmm. where you are today, and mm -hmm. then we're going to meet the guys. But specifically yesterday, you said, I tackled this because I was fearful, and I thought the only way to deal with that fear was to right. face it head on. Can you talk about that? Sure. So what I meant by that was when I asked these guys to come up here and work with me, I was terrified. Now, this is my home. It's private. It's gated. But I'm still bringing five drug addicts into, you know, a two or three hundred thousand dollar, uh, not the house is worth more than that, but the, the, the equipment, my gear, my, my profession, my, my, my entire livelihood's here in this room in these two rooms, and has been for 20, for 30 years. So I was terrified that what I was going to deal with, with them. So th I knew that the only way to really overcome something, any, and this is just me, guys. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here pontificating about what I think anyone else should do. My understanding, anytime I've ever been able to go right through something, was to confront it, confront whatever I was afraid of. So I was afraid of what I was going to get met with. Were these guys going to pull out knives? Were they going to pull out drugs? Were they going to pull out threats? Were they going to come back later once they came into this room and looked around and figured out what was here? I mean, I had a lot at stake. This Doing this album with them didn't come without a cost. They didn't pay me any dollars per hour. But I certainly put some serious risks on the table to bring five strangers into my home. Five strangers that are down in the dump. Why? Why did you do that? Because I knew the only way to, that I would have any chance of getting to them with their music. You got to remember that them, them coming here, I knew that they were really good players. I knew the, the singer had a really great voice. I knew the harmonica player was really good. Like the bass player really had it together. Like I knew they were good musicians. So they had something going on. They'd come from somewhere where they learned that and practiced that. So they weren't always homeless, you see. So, I, so bringing them in was predicated on, I knew they had something going on. What I didn't know was what they were capable of out of desperation. I didn't know that they, there was a chance they were going to come back and rob me. Uh, there was a chance I could be held at gunpoint and everything taken out of the room. And I, say, I don't say that lightly. I know guys that, that that's happened to. So you, you do have to be careful. So I did take risks, but I took risks knowing that they were good enough that if I could give them this, it might go the way of them actually getting better. Is that really what you have? I mean, that motivation, you already had that in the beginning because just to even have the initial thought, like, these guys are really good. I'm going to bring them to my studio and record them. That takes a pretty deep sense of compassion. Right, which I, which I believe I have. Where does that come from? 
Well, I mean, now you now you want to go all the way back to 1962 in Long Island. That's up to you. I mean, <laughs> you know, Addie, I mean, you don't have to be afraid of laughing. You can laugh. <laughs> she's trying to. You know. She's trying to cover up her mic and not laugh. But no, that's up to you if you want to go there now. But I'm just, I guess my point is, in this in this particular question, is that there was a starting point where you even had this initial thought. You heard the band. You decide you want to bring them here. Was it? Did, was the motivation from that moment you saw them, like, I'm going to change their lives by bringing no. them to my studio? No, I had no idea. I thought what I was going to do was give five, five homeless people an opportunity to see that, you know what, there's another way to go here. And that, I thought, was going to happen in two or three sessions in a studio, run some tape. Yeah, guys, pat them on the back, send them on their way and say, you know what, the white man's not all that bad. The angry white man that lives on the corner is actually a nice guy and that the whole world doesn't hate them. I thought I was going to say that. And it got much bigger than that without any idea that I, I didn't even see it coming. Like, I'm just an asshole. All right. So when they showed up at my house late and I called them out on it, I was just being a prick. What I didn't realize is that they were going home going, whoa, this guy means business. Like I didn't see that the other side of that was that they were going to have to get it together if they wanted to change. Now, that started to become apparent to me pretty quickly, but not right away. Okay, so we'll get into then how what real change you actually saw. But if you're up for it and you want to, let's let's go back to the compassion bit. When did you first recognize compassion for what it is and know that you have that? Well, look, that's a it's a great question, but it's a little deep. So let me just skim the top. You know, this Irish Catholic, um, the ninth of eleven children. You know, my dad was a cardiovascular surgeon. My mom was a registered nurse. They were devout Catholics. I think they only ever made love to each other in their entire lives. You know, you, 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 you follow? So they kind of put that there, I think, with all of us. So we came from this Catholic, do the right thing, be good, have compassion. My mother, my mother was raised in the Deep South, she was born in Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, you know, she didn't see, my mother didn't see color. Now, my dad did. My, mother, my dad was from, the, from a very wealthy family up in upstate New York, in the north. My mom was from the south. So I think compassion comes from how our parents or how the people that are influential, inf, influ, influencing our lives, I think compassion comes from that. So I had always had a fair amount of compassion for people. I just didn't know that I was going to do this much work and be up against this much anger when I was dealing with them. I wasn't aware of how really angry they were as people, as individuals. I don't hold them in contempt for it. I got my own. But you start to get to know somebody. You start to see where they really live. And when you work in a studio eight, nine, ten hours a day, a couple days a week, you start to really see where people are really at. So there's your, I hope I answered compassion. I just, I was, I've never been a person to turn my back on anyone. However, I can give, but believe me, I'm no, I'm no soft spot. It, you know, there's a limitation. There's a limit to, of what I'll give. There just is. Because I think there has to be. All of us only have a finite amount of money, a finite amount of property, a finite amount of skills. Nobody's endless and all giving as one might say, Christ is, but let's not get down that road. I'm just saying, 
I'm limited in my resources. So I gave what I could to the point in which I felt comfortable. What I didn't know is what I had deeper was the ability to push back on them, to allow the anger to hit the floor in the room and stand in it and work through it, which is what you have to do. I think a lot of homeless people, whether they're aware of it or not, are really, really angry. They're full of rage. That's why they're there. The rage got them there. The rage is before the homeless. It's not homeless that become full of rage. The rage exists and then they end up homeless. Does that make sense? The chicken egg thing? Well, this is the rage thing. The rage homeless thing, the rage is there first. So talk a little bit about how you saw that evolve in this process. Or them evolve. The rage, their perception, their attitude. Because they knew they would walk out of here angry. And they would walk out of here and say, you know, that's a really angry white guy. You know? And they'd love to pin it on me that they're homeless. But they but they couldn't. Because I was the one standing there giving them something they wanted and making them work for it. It wasn't just a flat-out gift, you guys. They had to do some shit. You, you follow? They had to stand there and be humiliated because they were too loud or they were rushing or the bass guitar, the bass guitarist was too heavy-handed. He was too distorted. And if I said it once, I said it a million times. Dude, lighten up on your touch. You're raging mad with that instrument and it sounds like shit. See, I had, to, I had to be the guy to stand there and do that. And what I knew, and I don't know where this came from, what I knew was how far I could push him to the point where they'd throw the guitar down and walk out the room and it was over. Like, I knew where that line was. I don't know how, but I knew how, where the line was. The whole idea of bringing five homeless guys into your home and recording them for free is not what it seems. Because what's underneath that is I'm not just giving them the room and saying, yeah, okay, and pushing buttons and going, yeah, okay. No, it was pushing them into being better, teaching them how recording works, teaching them how we track. We track the drums and the bass first. The singer's got to sing, but it's only a scratch track. Then the singer comes. Yeah, I had to go through this whole way an album is made. I mean, I had to teach them every living minute. And I wasn't aware that I had that capacity until I got in here. And I'm like, oh, shit, I really stepped in some shit now. Now I'm stuck. This fucking guy is going to keep keep me on this jag for four months. But I was keeping myself on it. See, I was getting something out of it. When me. did you first notice that y- you were in it for a little bit longer than you ever initially imagined? The very first session. Oh. <laughs> because, I, 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 because they were so horrible. And I went, oh, no. You know, and but but they were so the light was on in their eyes. That's why I started to sob a little earlier because I saw the light go on in their eyes and me. They were like, "Oh my God, are you kidding? Is this what this is?" And I was aware that they had something that excited them. So I thought, "Well, let me see if I can hold on to them a little bit and give them some of this." Does that make sense? And then once I made that decision, then it really became the work. Then it was like, okay i got to tell this guy he's just, you know. And, and I feel really bad because I beat up that, uh, not physically, but I beat up the guitar player pretty bad. 
I said to him, look, dude, you, you keep playing the way you play. Nobody's going to want to play with you. Like, I was really letting him have it. But he's a very quiet, kind of meek, he had a kind of a meek personality. But I knew he respected me enough to stand there and stare back at me. That, and that's what I was talking about earlier, Addie. It was I took him right to the line where I knew that they were going to, they could drop and run or they could stay with this and they could grow themselves. And it was a, it was a, it was a push pull. The whole process was a push pull, but that's the only real way to work that out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Where are they now? Where are they now? Um, well, first, I guess I don't sitting know. Sitting in an empty room down at the mission, waiting for me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to give us that timeline. How long? How long has it been since you finished recording with so them? So we started. We started in December. I agreed to do the record in December. They were kicking to get in here and. So they came in once in December. And of then 2018. I, 2018. And then I said, well, I, and then I got busy on some things I had to do, and I traveled a little bit. I had some stuff that going on. I couldn't just – and then – so they started to think, oh, he's full of shit. I know what they were thinking because I know what somebody that's desperate thinks. One more time, you know what? Somebody abandoned them. Somebody worked with them once and decided they didn't want to have anything to do with them. That's not why I decided to do the record, but I knew that's what they were thinking. So I kept calling the harmonica player and saying, J- "James, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm tied up on this and this, but I'm, I'm gonna get, them, I'm gonna get there." Then he started to think, "Oh, well, he's this, okay, he's full of shit." But then we pulled the trigger and they came, and then, then the process started, and then they started to become aware that, um, that you know, this was for real, and that we were actually really making this record because I was taking the time and. That they kind of believed. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I want to tell you a story. Okay. I know a heroin addict when I see one. And, you know, you know, oh, it takes one to know one, whatever. Not that I'm a heroin addict. It was never, that was never my drug of choice. But whatever. But this guy's sitting in your chair, and he's nodding out. This drum, the drummer of this band. I mean, he's nodding. And I'm going, man, it's like, it's noon on a fucking Sunday. What's up? Maybe maybe the sidewalk was a little stiff last night, but come on, man. You know, you're here to support your band and make a record or whatever. So we went the day, and I knew I was in trouble. I knew he was the one guy that was really going to be the problem because I could, I could smell it. So sure enough, they all went to leave that day, and they walk out to the street. I come back here, and I close the door, and I start rolling up courts. This guy knocks on the door. I open up the door. It's him. Now, he's left the band out on the curb. He's now coming back by himself. And I'm immediately terrified. This is the what I was talking to you about, having to confront something. So I say, hey, man. He goes, look, man, you know, nothing with those guys out there. Not, nothing to do with those guys out there. But, you know, you, you got a little something to help a brother out. So I said, well, now I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant. He wanted cash. Oh yeah, let me let me go. How much? Let me go into my. Let me go in. Let me go in my. Let me let me pull out my wallet. And now, now this is really the truth. I said, dude, I don't ever have any. I don't have any cash on me. I don't care. You know. I said, hey man, you want you want me to make you a sandwich for the road like you hunt? You know. No man, you know I just need a little cash. You know I just I thought maybe you could help a brother out. Yeah. Well, I don't. I I couldn't now. Even if I had a hundred dollars in my wallet, he wasn't getting five bucks of it. Because I know he's nodding out. So you don't give a heroin addict money. That's just not what you do. So 
He said, all right, you know, it's cool, man. I, I understand. He let me off the hook right away. But what was terrifying to me was what, we, what he was capable of. Now, look, you guys, listen carefully at the manipulation. He leaves the band out on the street, comes back through two closed gates and knocks on a clo- goes walks through a closed door and knocks on another closed door to get to me alone. Now I'm standing here completely vulnerable, you know, armless in my own home with a guy four times my size staring at me, asking me for something without any, maybe some other conscious. You, you see what he did? He came through two gates and two closed doors to get me alone. So I knew this guy was a problem, right? Now, I'm going to tell you what happened to him. As we speak, this is nine months from when I started this album. That guy's dead. That guy's dead. The Employment Development Department sends or your welfare people. I don't know technically how it all works, but they don't just give you checks or send cash or money. They give you a debit card, and you have to use that debit card as a means to eat and live. So they can track your expenses. They look at you're not allowed to buy liquor. There's things you can't buy with food stamps, right? So I don't know if it was – anyway, he got one of those debit cards. I don't know whether it was unemployment or whatever it was. But what he did is – and those, when they were handed out, uh, from what I understand, the balance on his card was $200 a week. Now, I actually can live on less than that, to be honest. But not not with utility – but food I'm talking about, okay? So he sells that card on the street for 120 bucks to a guy that gave him cash. Now that guy's happy to give him cash for the 120 because now he's got 220. He just made $100. But the heroin addict wants cash because he can't buy heroin with his EDD card, right? So what does this guy do? He pockets the 120, gives the card to another brother on the street. I don't know whether he knew the guy or not. I don't suspect he did. He walks around the corner, calls EDD and says he lost the card and gets it canceled, so he sent another. Now he's got another card for 220 on its way, or about what it was, I think 220, and he's got this guy's 120 in cash. You know what happens? He doesn't know it, but he runs into that guy. That guy put a knife in his chest. He killed him for $120. This is what's going on down there. Most people aren't aware. Now, the only reason I know that, you guys, is because the story was told to me by the harmonica player, the leader of the band. He told me the story. And he told me the story standing on the street outside the mission. And he said to me, Bill, Bill, you don't walk around out here without me. Bill, you be with me and Art. You be with us. You walk around out here, you be with us. They see a white man with a wallet and a clean shirt. They're going to take it. So this is the other element of what. Now, I only have that story for you because I'm on the inside of what's going on because the guys that I am friends with are actually homeless on that street. That's how I have that story for you. But the story needs to be told in that. So hopefully your listeners or we can bring some awareness to this is what's really happening. It's, it's serious. Okay. But anyway, so that drummer, he's dead. And this is nine months from when that, when that event that I told you about happened to me. That's scary. 
So consequently, I ended up playing drums on the record. So I said to the four other guys, don't ever bring somebody here that's high. And I called James out and I said, you knew that fucking guy was high. You knew he was on heroin. Don't tell me you didn't know he was in the situation he was in. And you brought him to my fucking house. I said, I'll pull the plug on this whole thing right now. And that's, that's the pushback I'm talking about. I said, I'll shut this fucking thing down. You guys can go to hell right now. You're not bringing somebody blown out like that to my house. And then they started getting aware. Oh, so this is what the other side lives like. You see what I mean? This is where we can help the homeless. Not by putting up 50 units on 6th Street. This is so what? All right, next question. How has this project and this journey changed you? Mm. It hasn't. That's bullshit. (laughs) No. No, you know, look. I don't know how much it's really changed me. I mean, what I do know is that, oh, sure. I, I mean, I have a lot more compassion. I have a lot more understanding of what I think really needs to happen. Um, from an emotional and psychological point of view. But again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. I, I don't, how me, I, I have a little bit more understanding of what the, the, what the problem really is. And I'm here to tell you, it's systemic. This is a systemic problem. There is no fix to this and there's no quick fix. I mean, there's fixes, but they're long fixes over time. I mean, why is the state of Texas getting guys that come out of jail and they're giving them $200 and a bus pass to California. Why are they doing that? Because they don't want them in Texas. New Mexico is the same thing. Get out of jail in Mexico, where would you like to go? They'll literally bus, you pay your bus fare and give you $200 to leave the state. My guys told me that if you go downtown and talk to the homeless people and ask them where they're from, the majority of them are not from California. They're sent here or they've come here. We know the weather's one factor. You're not homeless in Massachusetts. If you're homeless in Massachusetts, you die. Right? You're, but you can, you can live here. Even though the windows can get cold, you can still you can survive them on the street. You know. So what's your, what's your end purpose with this? I mean, the album is going to be released and then... Yeah, the album actually got released in July, but we're still in. We're still going to throw a record release party in October, and we're going to try to shoot it. Uh, you know, I'll I'll ask the mayor's office if he, if they'll come down and support this. I know the Midnight Mission will support it. The people that work there will get behind it. They'll bring people. You know, the end goal. You know, I don't know. I think, I think I've kind of already done the end goal. You know, the end goal is how I've affected these. I want to say five, but now it's four. I don't want to say I affected the guy's death, but but because um, he did that. But um, uh, you know, I I've affected their lives and and the lives of some of the people that they know and that they'll meet and that they'll run into. And you know, if they you know they're so funny. He comes to me the other day. He says, "Hey, Bill, now, Bill, we're gonna uh, uh oh, we're gonna record. We we're gonna start another album. We're gonna, we're gonna start another album. Oh, really?" Oh, so when are you planning on doing that? I know what he's saying. He's telling me we're starting another album. That's the why the response is, oh, really? Really? When are we doing that? 
Like it's like, oh, I'm gonna go down this road again. So I said, um, oh, really? <laughs> so he's yeah. Like like this is the no boundaries thing. Like he has no idea what he's saying. The assumption is that I'm just gonna fucking do it all over again. Really? Oh, okay. And who's paying for that? You're making assumptions with my bank account because I know you ain't got the fucking money. <laughs> right? So I said to him, oh, and then it was the way I said it. He got it. The light went on. It's like, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? That's the light going on for them. That's holding up the mirror and letting them see what, you know what I mean? So anyway. So I don't know. Uh, it's a good question. I don't, I don't have any idea. What's well, I was on. reading somewhere, I think, when I saw the post about the sales going to support the mission, the well, sales what, of the album. Right. So what I did was I made the record, and I don't know if you know much about the music business, but when you make a recording, someone owns those recordings. Those recordings are called the masters. It's the ownership of the, int- not the intellectual property, let me be clear. It's the ownership of the physical property, the actual physical recording. So I went into it and I said, look, I said, I'm going to give the masters to the mission. If they could sell the record, they could keep the money. So what I did was I decided to let them have the record because I paid for it. But I decided to let them have it. And if they could sell it, then they could keep the money. And that's in it. That's what I could do to kind of combat homelessness is I was able to give something like that and say, look, if you guys, if they sell, if they sold a million copies of that record, I hope so. And they could keep all the money for it and put it to whatever they feel they can best spend that money. They would spend it better than me anyway. Does that make sense? So that's what you read. You, I, what I said was I gave them the masters and said, if you can sell the album, you can keep the money. Nice. You know, and the, the, so the album has been released to the well, public? Well, it's, it's officially released. I mean, it's on iTunes. You know, you can go to the, it's called Mission to Midnight. Now, the Midnight Mission is the facility downtown that houses and helps and feeds and med- medicares the homeless. They, they flip the name around for the name of the band, you know. Anyway, not, not the Midnight. The, the facility is called the Midnight Mission. They're called Mission to Midnight. I always, I always get it backwards, but so. Okay, so if you're up for it, you mentioned that you really can only come at this from somebody who has seen hell can often visit people who are currently in hell in a very different way. Right. So, for example, if you were on the street and somebody in a nice suit and tie that's come from a wealthy family has never been on the street, whether you're aware of it or not, there is an undercurrent that already exists before hello. And that is, fuck you. You understand? There's a resentment that lives before you even get to say anything. And when you put your hand out and try to pull that homeless person up, it's, it, it's bullshit. They'll take your hand and they'll take your money because they want the hot dog at 7-Eleven because they got to get till 4 o'clock. If that, I'm summing up and I'm, I'm, you, you, you follow? That's what it is. But it's not really going to get inside and affect who they are and really bring them to any place that they see a chance at hope or change. Follow? But if you're desperate and you're homeless and you are $2 short of being broke and you've been and have lived in that circumstance, 
then only you can really know what the person you're trying to help really feels. You know the anger. You know the resentment. You're aware of the feelings. It's like a drug addict or an alcoholic. I hate to tell you this, but it's only another drug addict or an alcoholic that can help them. It's the same thing. You have to have been homeless to really be able to understand what a homeless person really feels. And guess what? Just because they're homeless does not mean they're stupid. They can smell a rat at 200 feet. They see it coming. They can see bullshit a mile away. And it's only one that is them that can really actually say, hey, well, look, man, this is what I did. Come on, come on with me. It, it takes that. Does that make sense? Yes, and I I don't. You don't have to talk about anything um, overly personal if you don't want to. But are you saying that you come from homelessness? Well, look, you know, I was born and raised in an extremely wealthy family with a very, you know, my dad and mother were were science majors. Uh, You know, I have sisters. I have eight sisters. Every one of them are successful. Every one of them. I mean, they've graduated from the best universities in the country. You know, I was the black sheep. I came out here with you know, 400 bucks in a bad suitcase when, you know, 37 years ago, you know. But um, anyway, the point, not to get overly personal because I don't really know that that it, it would help that much, but I'll just say this. I got into some circumstances when I first moved out here and I needed to change. And that change came from really getting my ass kicked for about 10 years. So I came out here with... You know, when you're the ninth of 11 children, you come away with an enormous sense of entitlement. You're selfish. You didn't really get emotionally from, you didn't get from your parents emotionally what you really needed. So you're angry. And all of your relationships are with people that are angry. And you get into relationships with people that are also drinking excessively or using drugs excessively. You know, and I ended up in in this kind of lifestyle. And at one point, I was homeless. Now, I wasn't in a tent down on Skid Row, but I was doing the couch tour for a good year. You know, I was on this guy's couch, and then he's like, hey, man, you got to go. And then I was in the backseat of my car for, you know, a week, and then somebody else was like, all right, yeah, oh, you're, oh, you're, or I'm at the bar making some chick, man, and, you know, next thing I know, I'm like, I'm on her, I'm in her bedroom for a month, and then from her bedroom, it's the couch for three weeks, and then it's the fucking front door. You know what I'm saying? So, like, and so I, I did that thing. Now, I'm in my early 20s. I'm a kid. I, I don't know my ass. You, you know what I mean? But that was like, but I was, but the point is, I was there, and I know what that felt like, and I was drinking, and just FYI, and this is not a joke, I, though you could laugh because it's kind of funny if you want. I have been fired. To this day that we speak, I fired. Not like I'm tired. I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to do this anymore. No, like look. There's the door, dude. All right, from every single job I ever had. <laughs> every not like most of them, and maybe one I quit or something. No, I was escorted to the door with my cardboard box at every job I ever. Had. How long did it take you to finally decide you're just going to do your own gig? I had to get sober. <laughs> I had to get sober to figure out, oh, wow, you know what? I think this is, I think the problem's me. The reason I'm here in this studio working for myself is cause it's the only way I could. It's the only fucking way I could do it. I mean, every job. 
insurance companies, statements departments. I got fired from, I was the guy that wore the apron and, and, and gave quarters out at a pinball arcade. <laughs> I got fired from that job. You know why? The guy that hired me said, look, dude, you cannot smoke in the, in the there's no smoking with, at the pinball machines, like in the arcade. Uh, all right, yeah, sure, no problem. And I was a heavy smoker at the time, and you know, this motherfucker sitting with his girlfriend across the street watching me, it's been known to me, and I'm so habitual in everything that I'm doing at the time, and I light a cigarette. I mean, I don't think I got two puffs off that cigarette, man. That guy came flying through that do- door and said, this was my first night. Guy came flying through that door, he says, give me your apron. I mean, I didn't last like a night at that job. Now that's, so when I am confronted with these homeless guys, I know. I know the emotional feeling. Look, I was never, like I said, I was never in a tent on Skid Row, but I know emotionally where I was, where where they are. I know what it's like to be, to have like the security guard come and say, come on, you got to come with me. Can I ask a question? Yes, ma'am. I love that, like what you gave those men is hope in the future. And I love how you elevated the conversation from you're homeless, you're homeless, you're homeless to something bigger like and you kind of only you didn't even like address it sounds like you focused really on their talent and where they could be or that present thing what like and you said you were kind of you know them you know their situation did you have a like a recording uh, recording studio moment in your life to change you and you said it took 10 years for you to come out of that stage did you have a moment or a situation where you're where someone's like listen billy uh-uh no more and it, it kind of changed your yeah well, yeah I, I have had here's here's the thing i didn't have one i had several I, it took many the first one was i was 20 years old it was in the winter of 1982 no the winter of 1981 and i came home drunk at nine o'clock in the morning on a monday after completely unaware of where I've even been all weekend. I came out of a blackout walking down my walking down the street at my house on Long Island. I grew up in a in a beautiful neighborhood in Long Island and I was and I like came to uh walking home in the snow. I mean there were five feet of snow on the ground. And I walked up to my house and went to go come in the front door and it was locked. And it was such a gorgeous neighborhood and people didn't lock their doors. And it was you know what I mean? And uh, so I knock on the door, and I think, well, you know, my mother's going to answer, and I'm going to go upstairs. No. My mother answered the door and said, turn around. She said, see those hefty bags out there in the snow? There were seven hefty bags of everything I owned out in the snow. She says, you might as well decide where you're going to go, but it ain't here. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She goes, you can go upstairs and brush your teeth. Like she still had one more thing she had to tell me to do, right? This is part of where all the resentment comes from in the first place. You can go upstairs. I suggest you brush your teeth and you can take the toothpaste with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wow. And I'm like blown out, drunk, like hungover. And it's like nine in the morning. And she's like, yeah, take and, and but I'll never forget. And you could take the toothpaste. It's like I could have the toothpaste, right? How gracious! And, and, and how old are you at this point? I'm 20. Two years out of high school and with nowhere to go, no focus, nothing. And I dragged those seven hefty bags down the street and moved in with a friend. 
And I lived there for six months and then moved to California. That was the first moment where somebody said, your drinking and drug abuse is not going to work. And you know what she looked at me and said? She goes, I watched this with your father. I'm not doing it with you. So she had enough going on to do that. And I resented and hated her for 10 years. But when I got sober, I realized what she did was that that was the loving thing, was to have that boundary. But see, I couldn't see that. It's like these homeless guys. You know, you put up, you throw up a wall, you throw up a wall, you throw up a boundary, you set a plan, you set a date, you, you know, and they don't, they, they keep pushing them. They keep testing them like two-year-olds. They keep testing them. And then one day they go, whoa. This is actually, this guy actually loves me. See, that's where it comes from. I figured out my mother actually loved me by doing that. I have a little brother she didn't do that to. And you know what? He didn't turn out so well. You see? So there was that moment to answer your question. And then there were moments of like, you know, the girlfriend slamming the door. That's it. Done. There was the guy who's like, man, you've been on my couch too long. There's the jobs, everyone. I mean, every. I was fired from 17 jobs. I counted them one day. I had 17 jobs in 10 years. I was fired from every, sing, every single one. Now, that's not the job, right? So these were, all of these were a culmination, culmination of events. And then when they put a pair of handcuffs on me in 1991, I went, okay, you know what? I think the jig is up. It took that. Now, I didn't go to jail for any kind of time, but I was certainly, I had felony charges pressed on me, and I was, uh, I was the, the threat of being incarcerated was very present. And I, I ended up getting through it and getting out of it, and they dismissed all the charges, which I had to work for, by the way. But that was, okay, maybe that's, that's probably the biggest one. Getting thrown out by my mother, I was an arrogant punk little 20-year-old, yeah, I'll fucking show you. You know, that didn't work. The job, getting fired from the job, eh, didn't really work so much. Some, they all kind of were adding up to me saying, wow, I think I got some problems. But when they put a pair of handcuffs on me for driving under the influence and possession of a controlled substance, which is a felony, with intent to sell. Now, that wasn't what I was doing, but that was the charge. So I was like, man. Even the cop was a nice guy. Like the cop even said to me, "Dude, you something's wrong because like you're actually a nice person." Like what? I was I was misdirected, but I think the handcuffs had a lot to do with me going. Uh oh, you know what? I think, and it was soon after that I got sober because I realized, you know what? This is this now my freedom's getting threatened, and that was where I think that that was the line for me. Now the homeless peeps. I don't know that being on a tent on the sidewalk is a line for them. That's what I want your listeners to really hear. That's not a line for them. That's like, hey, man, this is cool. You know, they keep moving the line back. You know, well, when I'm homeless, I'll get sober. Well, you're homeless. Well, okay, when I'm, you know, in the hospital or when I'm diabetic or when I'm, you know, whatever. Like, they just keep moving the line. Well, the line didn't move anymore when I was arrested for felony possession. That was when I was like, <gasps> okay. And I had to put up the only thing that mattered to me, which was the deed to my house. I had to put the deed to my house to get out of jail. And then it was nine months of, you know, hiring attorneys and, and fighting and going up against the city. And the city gave way. And the judge said, I'm going to give you a way out of this. 
and I had to go to a drug diversion class. I had to pay a fine. I had to do community service. I mean, I had to do some shit. And at the end of it all, they dismissed it. But I was sober. Does that help? It, do you still have your mother? No, she died about two months ago. Month, month and a half ago. Oh, wow. Ah, wicked old witch. It's good she's gone. Were you all, were you able to make amends? <laughs> I said that. Do I laugh? What are you doing? <laughs> I, listen, I said that for a laugh. I really loved it. We, 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 we ended up in a good place. <laughs> And I think we're done. Uh, yeah. It's been nice knowing you. We're going to pack up now. Condolences. We got to go. Yeah. Condolences. Hey, nice knowing you. No, she's really a beautiful. Listen, here's the point. She was 95. She had dementia for a year. She, had, she, hadn't, she hadn't known who I've been in, in a couple of years almost. You know, was, Did you ever get to tell her about, like, mom, it took 10 years, but. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. When I was, when I was sober, my third year, the third or fourth year, I flew back to Long Island and sat on the, sat in the dining room t- uh, table and made amends to her. I oh, oh no, we beautiful. Yeah, yeah, she's, a, she's an extraordinary woman. Well, she had eleven of us, and we all, except for one, we all really get along, and I think that's a testament to how she's kind of come through. Somewhere, somewhere, we got loved. Somehow, we got. What we needed is, in a lot of ways, we didn't, we had to, we have to give ourselves ultimately, but she was really, we, we, I made amends to her and I spent a a good 20 years into my sobriety nurturing that relationship and we actually came out, we came out really good. I really just say that to play. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. I think being able to come to a place in your life where you've made amends like that affects your ability. But I want to tell you guys something about that. That's something only we can give ourselves. That's nothing that can ever come from someone else. You know, even me giving the guy, the homeless guys the album, they had to have the wherewithal to stay in the room with the angry white guy through that to get they, it was them. You know? i tell you something that was important about what you're asking about earlier. I had said to them, you know, we could sell this record, but I want you guys to live in dignity. Don't, don't, just because you're homeless, don't, don't play that card. You don't get to play that card to milk this for some, oh, you know, you know, maybe the government's been, you know, trying to give you guys and give and give and throw at you guys for a long time. But this isn't, for you to have the self-respect and the dignity, you've got to stand in a position that you don't take anything from anybody. And, you know, they heard that. Because they knew they could play this homeless card and sell that record. It's not, it's not the point of it. That's not, that's, that's not why you're, you're doing it. You're doing it to tell other homeless people, there's a way out of this if you want to do it. If you want, there's a way to go. This isn't about you and your homeless album. This is about you showing your peers downtown that if they want to figure out a better way to live, that there is a way to do it. It's not... It's not impossible. The problem, you guys, is that the problem is so deep and so systemic that you just don't go down there and wave a wand. You know, I played a gig with them recently as their drummer on a little little square, a little kind of trees and bench parks and a little kind of beautiful little, you know. And I was the only, except for one white woman who looked like she was just drunk and passed out over in the corner. I was the only white guy 
in that little park. And we played for an hour on a Sunday afternoon at noon. And we played for a half an hour, and the guy says, all right, we're going to take a break. So I said, I'm going to walk around the corner. There's a little bagel shop down at the corner. This is at 6th and Figueroa. This is a little kind of homeless. And everybody, you know, and the light is out in the eyes of everyone in that little park. I mean, there is no, and I went, walked out the little gate, walked down to the bagel shop. And just as I'm walking right past the left side of my head, I keep my eyes straight, kind of minding my own business, and I hear, what, motherfucker? Now, I know that I'm not going to turn around. I know I'm not going to engage. I know I'm not going to, all right? But that is what they see when anyone with a clean T-shirt and a wallet in their back pocket is standing there. I mean, that was just, you white motherfucker. I'll never forget that. And I kept walking. I got my little bagel and I went back. And then sure enough, lead singer comes over. He goes, Beal, I tell you, man, you don't walk around here without me. You see? So how do we then, how do we go up against that now? How do we crack that open and shift that level of rage? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I was, I, I, I'm sharing with you an answer I had for four guys. Go. Because of that and because the problem is so overwhelming, what kept you motivated? It's four dudes. They kept me motivated because they were willing to stand in it. They were willing to hear the truth about what they really were incapable of. They couldn't show up on time. They could. They come without their instrument. They'd come with, you know, the guitar player would come and he would, you know, he'd have a he'd have a busted string and there'd be no other string in the guitar case. They were just they, this disheveled life. Why I kept going is because they kept coming at me for more. I want to say they kept coming at me for more abuse, but they kept coming at me for more because I think somewhere they understood that my motives were honest. You know why? Because they weren't paying me for it. And it was kind of a two-way street. It's like Marvis down here, you know. Uh, I said to, he's a, he's a rescue, and I said to one of my friends, "Oh yeah, you know I you know I I rescued Marvis." And my buddy looks at me and goes, "You rescued him, huh?" <laughs> and I went, "Wow, he's kind of right," because I was just newly divorced. Hmm. So it, it's you know it, wh- why did I why did I drive an hour and a half to a shelter to get him? You see what I mean? And it's all unconscious, you guys. I, I think most of your listeners, when they listen to this, I want them to understand that a lot of this is unconscious. I had no idea that I was bringing five homeless guys into the studio, and I didn't know where it was, I think. But maybe in some way, unconsciously, it was there. But subconsciously or not, you have to have an open heart right. to, to allow like, something to, yeah. like that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, well, the Irish Catholics said, you know, turn the other cheek, whatever that bullshit is. But with that comes some heart, some willingness to, to share and give. I'm getting back to that word compassion you're saying. I don't know where that comes from. I, I, I can't. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is it's always been the Catholic that's turned the other cheek. I, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't even know. I didn't even know if I could call myself a Catholic. I haven't practiced it in so long. It's like, really? You know what I mean? Do you have any kind of spiritual practice that of you Of course. No, I, I pray. I believe in God. I think that there's definitely purpose to what we're doing and why we're here. I was open to this interview for the reasons that you said you wanted to conduct it. I don't know you. I, I didn't have any, or you. I didn't have any, you know, there was no, you know, I, but I, 
what you spoke to me last night on the phone said, okay, you know what? The intention here, whether you'll do it or not, I don't know, but the intention is honest. Addie, I want to ask, answer your question. There were a couple of people in my life that I'll leave anonymous, and if they ever hear this, they'll know who they are. They actually gave to me. They gave to me when I was in some really serious circumstances. They had lovingly given, give, gave of their property and of themselves to me in a way for no, for no expectation or anything in return. I have a couple of friends that did that, two in particular I'm thinking about, and they're my best friends in the whole world. They know who they are, and they had given in a way that they didn't ask for anything back. It was purely for the gift of supporting me, and I think that when someone does that, at some point you feel like, you know, maybe I could pay this forward. Maybe I can do this. I, I can do it, maybe to answer your question a little bit, I could do it because it's been done for me. As my shrink says to me, you know, Billy, you can only give what you've been given. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you, you can only go as deep with someone else as you're willing to go with yourself. That's right. It's true. So I think that what you're trying to do here in this, this, I want to say charade, but this, this <laughs> kind of this, this escapade that you're. On. That's a good word, escapade. I like that one. I, I'll take you know, it. No, but I, but <laughs> I fair. think, but I, I think it's honest, and I think that we can always, you know. It's difficult for me to sit here and conduct this interview about me. Does that make sense? Yes, and I really appreciate that you were open for this because in talking to so many people all over the world that are doing really inspiring work, the thing that I have, the common thread that resonates the most with me is believing in the value of one and knowing that if, if we can encourage this audience to do nothing but find one person one cause and invest in that. We'll live in a different world. Right. You invested in five. Right. Now four. Right. Now four. I invested in five, now four. And there's more down there that I've invested into and that I would continue to. It's just I keep getting brought back to to what extent, Billy, at what point am I going to give to then where it becomes detrimental to me? And that's when I have to draw a line in the sand and go, okay, I've given enough. We all, again, it's back to we all have only a finite amount. Maybe God has an infinite amount, but I'm not, I'm not him or her. So I can't speak from that, that vantage point. So we're, there's a lot of work to do. We have a record release party in October. We've got rehearsals next month. There's things that we're going to talk about for a record in December or January, but I'm going to be clear with those guys. They they need to find an investor, or I gave the first one for free. I'm not giving you the second. I'll give a a, a, a rate. I'll give a discount. I'll I'll help out again, but I'm not doing what I did again. Let's sell this record before we decide where 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 else this is going to go. Does that make sense? But that's a boundary I need to have so I don't become resentful. You see, it's all about containing anger or trying to mitigate it before it happens. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like you are you have enough self-awareness to know where your boundaries are and that you I can know. hold that pretty clearly. I know. I get out of bed in the morning and say my prayers. And let me tell you, if something doesn't feel right in my gut, I know it. I think all of us do. The, 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 the trick is to listen to it. Follow it. It's not lying to you. Are you able to listen to it pretty clearly? Because yeah. sometimes it's hard for people to hear. No, I, I hear it. 
It's screaming at me every minute. But do you actively work on that? You actively work to to know what that is, that inner voice? Well, let's just say this. I spent 17 years on a couch with a $250 an hour psychologist. Every week for 17 years and when I was getting divorced twice a week. Now, she taught me about what's really going on. And it's never what things seem to be. And what happens is when you do that kind of work, you start to become aware of the unconscious. I see people doing things, and I know what they're doing is unconscious. Could you see it? But you have to be—you have to be in a lot of pain, and you have to be coming forward with something uh, that is important to you. And then you have to be willing to open up. You know, I'll give you an example. She charges me two hundred fifty dollars for fifty minutes. And I start talking about what really matters about 40 minutes into the fucking session. And very often she'll say to me, listen, you know, we can keep talking about the weather, but you got 10 minutes. I, it's interesting, like just the themes of just your mom, that literal locking of the door. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, what's up? What do you need? Like you're, yeah. you've stepped over the boundary. So like, how can yeah. I help you? But you need to go on. Yeah. And th that like theme of, even as you say, people like ask you to leave their homes. That's a boundary. Yeah. But then um, with your psychologist, the time thing of like, oh, no, you're this, you're on my time. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And then you doing that to the guys like, oh, no, the, the gate's locked at 930 a.m. So right. you're not that's right. like 931. We're not doing it. That's right. And I, I love that. It's like such a simple, a simple thing, but yet so profound. And yet it like comes from like where your healing kind of began. That's right. You know, that whole like, that's just so beautiful to me. Yeah. Well, if my mother didn't do it at 20, then who's gonna? Yeah. But is she essentially like, and I know someone did that for her in her life, but it's like, if you go back to that moment on the doorstep and I just picture like the snow and the seven trash bags, oh, that yeah. moment allows those, allowed those five men to be here. That's right. That's so Inst beautiful. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 25, 35 years later, but yeah, but yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. it's still, it's, yeah. that's why I think that the very profound things that happen to us resonate infinitely. Mm -hmm. But it, but we have to be in those moments and, you know, we have to be open to them. It's the willingness. Yeah. It doesn't matter what happens in our lives. Right. If our heart's not open and we're not willing. That's right. We're dead. You're not ever going right. to, you'll die before you ever get it. Right. So let's see. Have we have we covered? We've covered the homeless ban in that project to a, a fair degree, right? I think so. I think okay. I have a better, a much better understanding of that project. Of why I did that? You're going to do a documentary about that project. So I'm 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 in the middle of outlining a documentary now. So here's the deal. I'm pretty clear about what I want the documentary to be about. It's not just about homelessness, but it's about homeless and the homeless situation. But what it really has to do with is me trying to make a point, and here's the point. The problem is so deep, so dark, so big, and so systemic that if not everyone does a little bit, there's no way it's going to resolve. And what I mean by that, and what we, and I, I want to not get on the government. I'm not going with the government agents. It's all bullshit. I'm not going to be the angry white guy that thinks I'm here because of the government. But this documentary is founded in the fact that the homeless crisis 
If you don't think it affects you, I can tell you right now 10 ways it does. In profoundly, if you're a homeowner, if you're a resident of the city of Los Angeles, it is seriously affecting the quality of your life in ways that you may not even know. So who is going to step up and do something about it, take some small responsibility and contribute to the shift of the change in this? So it's about homelessness, but it also is about the redemption and the, the way to combat it, the way to come through it, the way to come out the other side, and the silver linings that can be experienced from what is so tragic. So the documentary just isn't about, oh, how do we get here? And the mayor invited all the homeless from around the world to come here. It, it, some of these things are true, but that's not what the documentary is about. It's, okay, so here's where we are. This is fine. This is maybe how some of the ways we got here, but it's also some a redeeming and some a redemption and how we can get out of it and how there are ways to get out of it. And I've got a few, and none of them are building Section 8 housing and providing a hot dog from 7-Eleven. Those are not the ways I'm talking about. There are much deeper ways that I think we've talked about through this Mission to Midnight album. But I think that's the key is most people have no idea what what in the world would I do. I have zero connection and to And I this. have some answers for them. But that's why we're going to make this documentary. Is so there's an answer. There's a solution. There's a way to go. There's not this let's just sit and, oh, my God, those people, they're disgusting. Honey, don't walk over there. That's not, you know – or to be terrified, like I was mentioning to you last night. I'm terrified when a homeless person approaches me. But how else am I going to get past that? It's to stand and confront that, not to walk away, not to shame them, not to give them a dirty look and act like they're not there. That doesn't, that's not, that doesn't do it. That they've got, listen, welcome, get in, get in line. They've had that happen to them their, their whole lives. You're just doing what everybody else has ever done their whole lives as far as they're concerned. There's another way to go at this, and this is what I'm writing about. This is what the documentary is going to be about. Can we follow you? On oh, your, sure, absolutely. I mean, journey. I'll set ways up to do that. I'm not there yet. You know, I'm trying to. I'm, right now, I'm in the process of obtaining the funding, and I've got uh, I've got a couple of producers in place and a writer that's in place. I mean, I've got it all outlined, and I'll direct it. But I got. I still have. I, I'm, I'm not there yet. This is the first I'm even talking about any of this. Nobody's ever asked me about this homeless band. I posted that. You're the first person that's ever responded in any way. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. I was I was certain you had like been doing interviews. No, nope. <laughs> people. It's because people don't want to deal with something they don't even know how to start. You had the courage to pick up the phone, send an email. That that's more than ninety nine percent of it. People people look at that and they go, "Oh, good, good, yeah, oh, that's beautiful." Somebody they're else is like dealing this, with it. Because they just, they're, they're looking up over their shoulder the other way with their hand to the opposite side of their body because they can't deal with it. Well, because you're not held responsible for things you don't know. So if right. you don't know about it, you can't be held That's responsible. Right. Exactly. But this documentary is going to show you how you know about it. It's in your backyard, literally. It's out in your trash can. It's on your sidewalk. It's in your parking enforcement. It's in your mayor's office. But I think this is a humanity issue. This isn't just about homeless in Los no, Angeles. Honoring someone's humanity, not being able to honor someone's humanity is global. 
I think that's why we live in the world we live in. And especially if you have no frame of reference and you have no idea how to honor someone else's humanity when they are so far removed from anything that you understand or you're comfortable with. So I think that's part of, I mean, I think that's part of what keeps me motivated is hearing stories about people who are honoring humanity. And hopefully that can inspire someone else to think differently Mm -hmm. that can Mm -hmm. shift perception that can shift perspective Mm -hmm. because that shift in perspective and perception is what changes your eye contact when you walk down the street right that's why people look away and to ignore a homeless person is just again it's just something that's that's par for the course that's exactly what they've had done their whole lives you're not giving them they don't that they expect that if we don't do something, this, this is, it's only getting worse. And I don't want to be a pessimist, but. What would you say to other people that would like to do something useful, don't even know where to start? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know how to, don't know where to start. I, I kind of didn't know I was starting when I was starting. I, I didn't know. But there is, you've, this is what I could say. You've got something. I don't give a shit if it's, you know, a box of toothpicks. You have something that you can share. There is something you could do. There's something you could say. There's something you can write. You know someone down at a publication. You have a friend that works at a hot dog stand. You have, uh, you know, a box of toothpicks in your kitchen. I don't give a shit. You have something. It's are you willing to use any resources you have and not be ashamed to do it? That, but you've got so I don't care who you are. I don't care if it's the Armenian down the street or the Mexican up the road or the Russian, you know, and that lives in South America or the, or the Honduras, you know, me, you know, church maid. I don't care who you are. You've got something, and you've got something someone can use to make this situation that people are living with a little better. So maybe that's where it starts with openness and willingness. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've got to be open to, you know, look, I, I took Marvis to the park the other day. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Three days ago, I took, took him down to Marvis Park. It's We call it Marvis Park because when I make a list of things to do every day, I have a big list of that, things I do, and I'm pretty good about getting them done, and one of them is Marvis Park. And what that's my shorthand to writing, take Marvis to the park. So I write Marvis Park. So now we call the, we call the park Marvis Park. I'm going to go to the city of North Hollywood and see if they'll name the park Marvis Park. <laughs> I'm going to ask them if they'll you know put a little statue of Marvis on the corner. Can't hurt to ask. Wrote, what's that? Can't hurt to ask. Doesn't hurt to ask. I'll make a strong case walking him in. <laughs> so anyway, so I write Mar- So I brought him down to the park the other day, and and um, there was a, a homeless guy. Oh, there's tons of them there, but there was one in particular, and he was angry and speaking loudly, and he was staring at me, and and, man, it was terrifying. And it's just me and Marvis, and we're walking, and this guy wouldn't take his eyes off me. And he was talking to himself, and he was swinging a large rubber rope, and it was like, there was a big part of me that was like, don't make eye contact, just keep walking. He was very frightening, and the look on his face was very, he locked eyes with me, and let me tell you something. He wasn't letting go. I had to let go. I had to look the other way. I had to get busy with Marvis and keep walking. But he was going to, he locked eyes with me and I kept my eyes locked right back at him. And I realized I was going to lose that battle because he was ready to go at me. There was no question. And he was looking for an excuse to do it. 
So we, we are in a desperate situation. And yes, I've, it takes humanity. It takes an entire society of people to be willing and open. It really is. That's, I mean, those are the words. You do what you can. There, but every, I really believe everybody has something. I mean, the homeless are even taking care of each other. That's right. They are. I drove by the other day, and there was a big tent, and it said, open. And I'm not kidding you. There was a barber's chair, a real barber's chair on the sidewalk, and this motherfucker was cutting hair in a tent, and it said, open. That guy was open for business, and he was in a tent cutting hair. I was like, yeah, man, you go. We'll see if the city of Los Angeles comes around for their business license fees. <laughs> They're going to want to say, where's your license? <laughs> if I was that guy, I'd be like, really? You're going to ask for my license, motherfucker? Are you kidding me? But, but that's what they would do. Yeah. They go, hey, you got a license for this? You're on the sidewalk. But it said he had a little makeshift crayon drawn sign said open. I love that. It was, and but it was like a real barbershop with like the pump that goes like pumps the seat. It was like a real. It wasn't like a lawn chair. It was a fucking barber chair. It's unbelievable. He has no storefront, but he has a barber's chair. Now you you pulled your book out. What, well, what you got? You have any any? I'm happy to answer any more questions. Okay. I, I think as a listener, I would I would kind of be interested in knowing where are they now. And I know you can't go into too much of that because of the documentary, but like, are they? I think I'd be curious. Are they doing better? Quote. Better, yeah, I think. Or? Well, I think I know that they're doing better emotionally. I know oh, that they're way more accepting about the circumstances they're in. So I know they're doing better emotionally. Their living circumstances are just the same. One of the guys is really going to have to find a place because he's in the mission. It's, he's in the midnight mission itself, and he's got to he's got to go. They're not they're not keeping his bed anymore. He's he's up and on his feet enough that he's got to you know. The lead singer wants to leave town and go back to Chicago because he's on the street and he's got family in Chicago with a place to live. And he said, "Man, I, you know." He said, he says, "Brother, I'm 63 years old, man. I don't know how many long, how many, how much longer I could sit down here on the street." He goes, "You know, I got a little room upstairs at the mission, but you know, they're stealing my toothpaste. Talk about toothpaste. You know, they're stealing my toothpaste and they're going through my clothes. I come in, my shoes are gone, and I mean, oh, you, you, you look at me like you're surprised. I mean, they'll take, they'll take your shoelaces. I mean, they'll, I mean." I walked in there with a couple extra shirts for rehearsal one day, and I had a guy come in. You gonna wear those? Like the, he wanted my T-shirts in my arm. It, it, it's 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 beyond desperate. So where they're at now, I'll just tell you, they're better emotionally. They're better equipped to how to live. I think that they've got hope. Um, they're looking forward to a record release party that we have booked at a at a venue here in in Hollywood on the 26th of October. They're looking forward to that. We have another venue that they're going to book. They're coming up here next week. We're going to write another song together. Um, we wrote a bunch together. I'm going to pull my piano out. We're going to write a couple of more songs together and talk about another record. I, I have to ask their permission uh, to get their permission to do this documentary and include them in it. Um, so that's kind of where it's at. There's, there's more to do, but I think if I can stay focused on this documentary, raise the funds, get it shot, get it cut, get it made, get it released in enough time, um, I'm hopeful that enough people will look at this and go, okay, you know what? 
we, we, we got to do something. I have some of those answers, but I, I don't have them all. I don't know, guys, you know. I mean, you're just talking from your personal experience. Right. I mean, what else do we have? Right, exactly. But uh, we are going to go out and investigate. We're going to get some of the homeless themselves. Hopefully we'll get them on camera, get them talking, get them speaking about what they would really need. Maybe interview them the way you're interviewing me and say, look, what, what is there a way that you, is there, do you have any hope? Do you have hope for the future? That is honoring their humanity because it's often, and I'm sure they're used to people telling them what they need. Uh-huh. You go in and say, what do you need? You How tell can me, we support what do you, want? you? I mean, is, the, is that sidewalk really comfortable for you or is there, is there another way to go? Why do you really want to be there or do you want to be somewhere else and why are your circumstances this way? You tell me what you want. Asking somebody why their circumstances are that way, just that simple act without making assumptions that, A, you're not intelligent, you can't get yourself together. That's why it's so important you're going to ask people why, because there's such an assumption that people are, the assumptions of why people are homeless. I think a lot of people think, well, they're crazy, or well, they're they're doing drugs, man. Well, yeah, we know we have homelessness due to alcoholism, mental illness, drug addiction. We know some of it's that, but it's bigger. It's way bigger than that. Some of it's just people who have fallen on hard times and have no resources or family or backup to get out. And maybe they're there temporarily, like you said earlier in this interview. Maybe some of it is temporarily. Some of it's by choice for a while until the sidewalk gets a little too stiff and then they decide, all right, I better go get my bed somewhere, you know, But the important thing is to not assume why somebody's try. in the circumstances the they're in to give to honor their humanity enough to ask them why. exactly. And is this why? Is this where you are? Are you choosing? I'm going to move into wrapping it up because I know you've only got it till noon, and we're getting close to that. I think. I don't oh, know. it's twelve oh five. Shoot. You guys okay. have to. You Real guys quick, gotta go. Just, just like you need to go. Okay, go ahead. Just let make me sure, yeah. let me just do a little wrap up. Sure, um, absolutely. Question. Just tell us what what is it you want out of this. What's your purpose? Well, there's two things. One would be to pull down and relieve some of my own personal anxiety. And I think that at the end of the day, when I'm at home, when the curtain's closed, the smoke is cleared, and everything is settled, I have to feel as though I contributed something to humanity in some way. I have a real need to feel as though my life has some value and some purpose. I don't have any children. Um, I'm a twice divorced middle aged drug addict. So what am I? Am I gonna? Am I ending on that note? I don't fucking think so. If you you know saying twice divorced middle aged drug addict certainly put, putting on an unnecessary label on myself. But, you know, in one could argue that that's what it is, too. That, 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 that's as true as someone who's got a heart and who's pretty generous. They're both true, right? So what I want is to be able to, when I approach my sunset years, which let's hope is not for a long time, that I'll be able to look back over my shoulder and go, you know, in some small way, I made a difference in – Using whatever I have, whatever resources I've got, I've been able to impart with them in a way that maybe made someone's life a little more comfortable or in a little more light with a little more realization. That's what my dream is. Make sense? Yeah. That's kind of the hope. I don't really know what's going to come from that, but I think that that's, that's ultimately the idea. 
And I think all of us should aspire to leave something a little better than we found it. I think if we all did that, probably wouldn't be homeless. Mm. You know? This has been a real honor to be oh, here yeah. with you and to hear your story. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Yeah. I would love to do a round two at some, but until then, what are the best ways for people to find you and your work? Um, probably my websites. I've got two websites. So one is billysullivanscore.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I write a lot of music for film and TV. That's where my bread and butter comes from. So it's billysullivanscore.com. That's one website. The other website is the studio and the, the products and the albums that I've produced from here. And the, that's called sullystone.com, S-U-L-L-Y-S-T-O-N-E, Sullystone. So those two websites are probably the clearest ways to get a hold of me. And Billy Sullivan is B-I-L-L-Y-S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N. Yeah, just think angry white man, Irish Catholic. <laughs> and what about the project? Can they? Is there a website for the project yet? Uh, there, well, there's a Facebook page, and it's Mission to Midnight. Okay. Any parting thoughts, Addy? Is does the mission recognize this what what has happened? Okay, good question. Quickly we'll end on this. Yes, they recognize that the band exists. They recognize that these guys went into the studio and made an album and gave them the masters. To the degree of with of which they'll get behind it and put resources is limited. They're interested in feeding the guys downstairs. They're not, the record's like, this is a hoopla, yeah, great thing. And if it takes off and makes them some money, great. They recognize it, but they're limited in what they're going to be able to put behind it. Now, will the entire staff come down to the record release party? Absolutely. Uh, will they pay 10 bucks at the door rather than expect a free comp entrance? Absolutely. But what they're going to do is a mission behind an album, I don't think they've ever done before. They've never been given the masters to an album. I don't think they know what to do with it. Wow. To recognize it, yes. To put it on their website, yes. To say, yeah, we're all coming down to the show, yes. But that's really limited in what they really need. Mm. Now, will they give them? Will they give homeless a bed and feed them? Absolutely. You know, Ralph's Grocery Store backs a truck up every day, baby, and they, they'll dump truck food into that place. I mean, they are 3,000 meals a day. Think about it. Think about just that preparation alone. So there's, they're doing everything they can do, but it's beds and food. And album's like, great, we're ha happy for you. Hey, yeah, sounds great. But they're, it, they can't, they don't have resources to put it, it's going to be what we generate. It's going to be by guys like you coming by and doing this interview. That's what's going to help the band more than the mission, even though the missions, they're, they're, they're already doing the heavy lifting. Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope this, I hope this does find an audience that's interested in supporting yeah, you Yeah, you know, I, I only have 800 friends on Facebook. So when I post it, and I don't even know that and probably only 200 of those see it. Yeah. And, and out of the 200, what, 12 are connected to it? You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like the numbers go down pretty fucking fast, don't they? It's, that, it's hard to be seen. It's hard to be seen. It's just so saturated. Especially in a town that this is all it's about. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Anyway, 
Um, I know you got to go. This with, has been well, an honor. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, and this thanks for having me. And let me know when this is gonna air. I'll, I'll forward it to my 800 friends. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. If you would like to be alerted to new episodes as they're published, be sure to subscribe to the Random People Show wherever you get your podcast. A big thanks to Max Diaz and his band Wires for the intro music and to CircuVision for the outro music. If you would like to recommend someone for the show, you can email us at hpimedia.com and put RPS in the subject line. Or you can post about them on Facebook or Instagram and tag or mention the Random People Show. I'll meet you in the next episode, and in the meantime, keep being curious.